So if you look at a lot of the grape breaches over time, and by grape breach, I mean things that have been handled well, they're very crisp, well articulated. They come from specific people in the organization. They're well planned, they're rehearsed, they're consistent. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with one of my favorite people in industry, Dave D'Amato. He's CISO at Gemini. We talk about the moments following a breach, including the processes effective teams put in place before it happens. Dave and I talk about what happens immediately after you've detected a breach and even do a role play of how to respond publicly. Practice generally makes perfect, or at least gets you close when talking about a breach. What can teams do right now to make sure they've got all their ducks in a row? And God forbid you do get breached, how do you successfully manage all aspects of it? both internally and when the media comes calling. Before I have this next guest introduce himself, I want to share with the listeners, this guest is probably one of my favorite people within industry. Full stop. I met Dave, who I'll have introduce himself in just a moment, as a result of a breach that I worked. And this was several jobs ago for him and uh, several for me. But seeing Dave and his team work in the face of the stress that a breach can cause. So my organization was breached and his team working with mine was quite something to see. And uh, many friendships were developed in that process. And so I have an immense respect for our guest. He has the ability to think on his feet, unlike uh, really anybody I've, I've met in industry, and has an extremely interesting mix of both technical and business perspective. And so uh, with that intro, which I never do, I'd like to hand it over to Dave to allow himself to do his own introduction and let us know where he is today. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Wow. I think maybe we just leave it there. That's about the best introduction I think I could have uh, received. Thanks for that. So just for everyone, I'm, I'm currently the CSO at Gemini. So for, for those that don't know, Gemini is one of the few regulated cryptocurrency exchanges and custodians out there. So I think many people don't realize that there are um, regulated exchanges, but we are regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services, just like many of the banks. We also have a SOC 2, type 2. We have our ISO 27001 certification. So we are a legitimate organization that has gone through a number of hoops to make sure that we are a trusted entity and to demonstrate that we're transparent in security. So it's kind of unique in the industry. And that's a growing trend. Um, I have a team that encompasses just about all aspects of an engineering-focused uh, security program that you might expect. And um, we do a lot of really interesting work. Um, whereas you know, the finance industry is a little bit slower and most of the problems have been solved. Crypto's a little bit a different beast because it's entirely new and a lot of the controls that apply in finance really don't apply to cryptocurrency uh, simply because, you know, crypto transactions aren't reversible. So it, it adds a lot of complexity when you're building out security controls in a, in a program. So it's, it's really fun, though, to operate in sort of a greenfield. 
We also have, I think, a lot of focus around building trust in the industry. Uh, it's been an industry that's been plagued for prop by tons of problems in the past, and that's that's something we're, you know, slowly chipping away at. And I think the industry as a whole is maturing, and uh, really enjoying that. But you know, prior to Gemini, I spent most of my time in consulting. So I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers and then for Mandiant. I was an early employee at Mandiant. Uh, I think it was like number twenty-eight on the consulting team. So it was before Mandiant was well known or very popular, and when we were. Uh, maybe not making quite as enough money to uh, remain open. There was periods of times where I think there was a little bit of concern that we weren't going to make it. But luckily, uh, you know, things went pretty well for us. Uh, but I spent uh, five and a half years there build, helping build out a number of their, their practices, helping respond to a number of breaches. I had a bunch of fun doing that. I was also the first security hire at Tanium when I made a transition into being a, a CSO and worked there for four years, helping them to transition some of their technologies, uh, helping to sort of reinvent their peer-to-peer platform that they had. So yeah, it's, uh, I guess you can say the last, you know, 10 to 15 years has really been spent at working at uh, smaller companies, scrappy startups and helping transition them into larger, larger startups that are still agile, but uh, maybe not quite as scrappy. So it's been, been fun and maybe a little bit tiring at times, but definitely fun. I think with that intro, a couple of things just for the listener. So first off, I want to come back to probably in another episode about Gemini and this transition of, of obviously, they have become very mature. You have helped them on that path. Uh, you have had to grow. They have had to grow. So switching into this CSO position for them and all the regulatory work you're discussing, uh, that's very different than breach and IR. But I want to come back to that. So how do you build sort of rapid trust in that type of organization, which is a a different monster entirely. We'll get to that. For today, I want to spend some time for several reasons. One, you have a wealth of information and knowledge on breach response, on incident response, both technically and organizationally. I want to spend some time there with you on that, because I think that that can be extremely helpful to the listener. There's a lot of organizations that might have incident responders, or even plans, IR documents. But the reality is, is that when the problem occurs, there isn't the muscle memory there. You know, they've planned, but it doesn't align with the real events that they're likely to occur when they see an issue. First question for you, and this is a simple one. How, how many breaches or incidents, maybe is a better definition or better term, have you had to work on? Uh, how many organizations have you helped with, with where you've airdrop in and help them with a problem, roughly? Uh, directly, it was about 100. Indirectly, you know, for my teams working on, it was probably more like, uh, you know, a few hundred. Let's just say even just 100 is, is significant. What is the, what's the common thread or is there a common thread when you airdrop in or your team, when there are positive outcomes, what is the commonality of the receiving organization? How do they behave? The best organizations respond to a breach by, and finish the sentence if you would. By executing on the practice and planning they had done in a organized fashion. Now, that's a pretty succinct answer, but would you then agree that, well, let me phrase it in a question, how many organizations were able to dust off their incident response plan and use that effectively in their response when you showed up? Zero. That's why, that's why I didn't say plan. I said planning. Big difference. Okay. So 
talk to us. What's the difference between the plan and planning? When does the plan is one thing, planning is another. When does the planning start versus the plan? I mean, the planning starts way before a breach and it's around architecture. It's around how you structure your team. It's around the type of activities, you know, exercise, mental exercises you perform. So, you know, from an architecture perspective, it's how you've planned your logging system. What's your retention? What are you logging? What data do you have? Because that's going to be the key source of information when you try and go back and figure out when something happened. And maybe it happened a couple of days ago, but maybe it happened six to eight months ago, right? That's pretty common. Hmm. It's the flexibility built into the organization, right? Do you have a small organization, a large organization? Is it a lot of engineering talent? Do you have the ability to make changes or gain visibility in the environment? Like what is security's sort of cash in the organization? Are they well-respected? Do they get what they need? There's all kinds of components from an organizational perspective that are important. And then there are a number of baseline controls that make it easier to contain and respond to a breach, whether it's around lateral movement or outbound traffic, or even things just like you know third-party risk management and understanding the solutions that you have in your environment. I want to go back to controls later, because I think that's often missed. Organizations spend money on things that may be helpful, but lack value often in identifying and responding to, to, to issues like a breach. If you can go back, tell us what happens. Some of us already know this, myself. There's an idea that a company has been breached. Either they've been notified from the outside or maybe they identify it from the inside. And they, were, they reach out to an organization like the one you used to work for or, or another. What are the kinds of events? What's going on inside that company sort of day zero? For those that have never been through it, what's happening? Yeah, I mean, so, so there's always some level of panic. And there's two types of panic I typically saw or experienced when dealing with organizations. There was the panic that someone's going to know that they're breached or the panic that they want to make sure that their customers are taken care of. And, and those would really, you know, obviously you can see there's going to be a, a good and a bad outcome there based on how they're approaching the incident. But, you know, a, a lot of times I would land and executives would sort of view me as, you know, as an enabler. And sometimes they would view me as a blocker, someone who is going to, you know, make life more difficult for them. And, you know, I think that perspective really sets the tone for the entire incident response and usually for the organization, like to understand their culture. So why do you think, what's your opinion? Why would somebody see you as a blocker? Why would somebody be upset that, that, that outside help has arrived? What, what's, the, what's the common thing you see there? Why would a company be like, why would they have that opinion of you? Yeah, I mean, so outside help is someone who's going to expose shortcomings potentially, right? That's how they can view it. So, you know, my team will come in, my team would find a bunch of problems, and you can either, you know, celebrate and, and learn from those, you know, failures or issues, right, in, a, in, in the after action, or you can view them as things that people will blame you for and want to hide those. Those were typically like the two ways people would look at it. And, and usually it was the better leaders would look at it as, hey, this is my opportunity to learn and grow and get budget and build the team that I wanted to versus, you know, the leaders who were like, how do we bury this? How do we hide this? How do we downplay this? How many organizations do you think when you, again, you, you show up, were excited that you were there because maybe the advice you gave as a third party influence was similar to the advice they had already given? 
I mean, I th- yeah, as a consultant, that was a common issue. There's nothing like coming in and telling leadership something the team's been telling them for years, right? And many times I think we would just get paid as consultants to do that. Um, I think most teams were. It didn't mean the leadership was, but it's, it felt like most of the the teams, the analysts, the engineers were always very happy to have us there for the most part because it meant that they could get the funding or things that they were asking for typically. I think at minimum, you could have been seen as a way not only to 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 justify, but also give that third party influence and maybe some support. You know, it's often, I've said this before on, on other shows, it's hard to get cooperation. And so your voice should uh, lend itself toward greater organizational cooperation. There's many teams that might have even enough budget, but they can't get it effectively utilized and the software or whatever deployed because of lack of cooperation. And so having a breach uh, speeds all of that up very quickly. I'm sure you've seen that as well, meaning the, 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 the rate at which an organization moves is much, much quicker once you arrive. Absolutely. It's, it's years of work get done in a few months. It's, it's incredible what organizations can do and, and without much, too much disruption. I mean, people work longer hours, but you sort of throw aside some of the constraints and limitations and rules that people have put in place to slow things down over time and, and get a lot accomplished in a very short period. So what advice would you have to the security analyst or mid-level manager, if, if, if you know that if there's a breach and years worth of work happens in months, not that anybody wants to have a breach or a major incident, but if you know that, and if you know cooperation increases once the outside firm shows up, what advice would you have to that team? What would you have in your back pocket to that, to that team member or that team knowing this? Yeah, I mean, hopefully as a security organization, you have, you know, a plan, a yearly plan, you know, maybe a, a multi-year plan with, with some things that you expect to get and some things you don't expect to get. And I think having that information for when an organization like this shows up or a situation happens is very helpful to sort of get that funding, to capitalize on that breach. I think hopefully you're at an organization where people will listen to you before the breach and to do that, you know, there's lots of different techniques you can use to sort of get the funding before that happens. But, you know, I, I think it's going to be true in most organizations. You, the, the funding or the headcount requests that you've been asking for don't typically come until, you know, maybe it's not a major breach, but some sort of incident happens, at which point you should have some great documentation to go justify, you know, maybe, maybe advocate that incident a bit, explain how it could impact the business or how it has um, so that you can get that funding, get that headcount. In your opinion, in general, why is it that a security organization doesn't get the funding or cooperation or headcount that it might need until there's a major issue? Well, it's hard to communicate, effectively communicate what the security team does on a daily basis when nothing bad is happening. And so, you know, as a, as a CSO, one of my major jobs is to, you know, be in marketing, right? So anytime an incident happens, well, not even an incident, let's say um, a failed attack happens, you know, a phishing attack or something else happens. My job is to articulate what happened, you know, how we were successful, maybe things that went well, things that didn't, but articulate the leadership that these things are happening and we're successfully blocking them and that there are still problems that, you know, maybe in certain cases we got lucky, 
or we, you know, we had maybe one control that was thankfully effective, but might not be, or highlights the fact that maybe AV is not always effective. So it's that education, that marketing, I think that's incredibly important that, you know, most people either it's very hard to do in security or they don't have time because they're so underwater focusing on other tasks. Shared with some after sort of the last big breach that I was a part of that the organization that I wanted to build was probably more of an advertising and marketing institution than anything. And obviously that wasn't our core mission, but that's how we drove a lot of value, I believe, not only in education, as you noted, but also reminding others that we were there, showing that we had capabilities that were relevant, and maybe most importantly, had the ability to share ideas to potential customers and existing customers that made them feel more confident about what we were doing, especially post-breach. And so bringing on people that even had an edge for producing clear communication, clear materials, having standards of education or standards of sharing that educational material. I even had a communications director within the SOC. So all of that, I think, is overlooked. Anything else you'd share related to that? I think you've got a lot to share there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think along that, and I didn't mention this before when you're sort of preparing for a breach, is, is the brand and how much the brand matters before the breach occurs. So if you look at, you know, when, when Google had their breach in, you know, 2010, I think it was with Aurora, they had a great brand, right? They had a well-known, you know, they had a good security team. They were known for great security. They contributed back to the industry in terms of open source software. They participated on standards boards. They were doing all the right things. And so when they were breached, they talked about it. They, you know, talked about it in the right way. It was well received. And I think that's key. And then after that, they went on this, they had this grand plan to sort of reinvent how, how systems were managed and, you know, zero trust, right? And, you know, beyond court model. So they really took it, ran with it and created a product out of it, which is pretty incredible. Um, you compare that to, you know, other organizations, and I'm, you know, I don't want to pick on particularly one organization, but you know, I think Equifax is probably a good one, where it has nothing to do with the security team, right? It's it's an industry that is not well liked by most individuals, right? No one likes credit monitoring or organizations, right? And so you're at a disadvantage to begin with going into a breach like that. You know, the security team has a monumental task and you know, hats off to Jamil doing a great job over there of sort of building a reputation for a secure organization. But you can sort of see how the the brand really affects the severity and how receptive people are to a breach. That's incredibly important. Related to that and brand and sort of messaging, in many cases, who is the one that has to deliver that that confidence to the larger market? So who's the who is typically the voice that has to stand in front of that breach message? And how do they get educated? How did, how did Dave help them prepare for that TV or, or news interview? What, who carries that message and how did you help them carry it? Yeah, I think in minor breaches, it tends to be the CSO. In major breaches, right, especially for public companies, the CEO or you know someone like that is involved or maybe it's like a CIO <clears throat> because simply because you have security reporting into them but usually for the the non CSO candidates who are communicating which is, is is frequent there's training courses that they should take um there are sets 
you know, someone should be in the room with them. Someone should be coaching them. Someone should be giving them things that are okay to say and not okay to say. Because what I often see happen with executives, right? Non-technical executives, they either don't understand the topic or they're often like just very great people and want to share lots of information, which is potentially uh, <laughs> really uh, a bad thing to do when you're we're talking about a breach, especially one where you don't know all the details. So if you look at a lot of the great breaches over time, and by great breach, I mean things that have been handled well, they're very crisp, well articulated. They come from specific people in the organization. They're well planned, they're rehearsed, they're consistent. Um, those are the types of things you want to aim for and practice with your communications team or an outside uh, firm that you may be working with. So a little bit of a departure. I've had many CISOs and organizations tell me, we've got an outside expert expert team that does corporate communications. And that's who's going to handle this. So it says it. They've documented this. So we're, we're covered there, Dave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where does that fall flat? It falls flat in the sense that every single breach notification I see begins with, we take security very seriously. So I don't know if all these uh, third parties have gone to the same school of thought or, or something, but um, they all sort of have a very generic tone and feel to it. And, and I think it's important that security organizations have a culture and they represent their genuine when they're communicating externally about a breach. There's some feeling to it. There's emotion to it. And, you know, there's certainly companies that do this better than others, but I think that's what, uh, you know, it's great to have a third party. I mean, I think you should have a third party come in and help, but, you know, there, there is a sense of humanity and, and our own culture that we need to inject into those communications so they don't read, you know, like, I, you know, we take security very seriously. Yeah. This is one of my big sort of rant areas, uh, and I won't rant because uh, I don't need to because you're here, but any breach notification letter, I think people need to take a class on creating those. Maybe we should develop that, Dave, or you could. I'm not smart enough. But we, I mean, these letters are plastic. Uh, they, they, these, these letters are, they, they don't feel right. And because they all, they all start the same way and they all say the same thing. And um, the reality is, is most organizations don't take it seriously. And if they do, there are certain groups within the company that, that do take it seriously and others that completely ignore it. And so it's not a universal statement. Kind of back to the, the idea that we have outside experts to help us with this. But the reality is you still have to have an executive get in front of the camera or take the interview. You walked us through a couple of things there. You said that many overshare. There should be other people in the room, good and bad phrases. Who should be in the room with them if they're having to give, let's say, a, an interview with media that's not over the camera, but it's over the phone? Who should be in that room? How do we prepare for that, Dave? Uh, I mean, you have comms, you have legal, you have security in the room. Like Those are the easiest ones. Uh, legal is probably the most important, honestly, just especially if you're, you're expecting any type of litigation. But those are the individuals you want to have in the room with someone. Uh, and, and preferably, you want to have practice sessions beforehand. Most of the questions are going to be relatively easy. They're going to be things you expect a reporter, a good reporter to ask, right? There's many good security reporters out there these days who understand their topics. And so I think that's important that you prepare for that. And there's even classes and companies that will run fake interviews. I remember doing this in a past life where, you know, I got sat in front of a camera and I was asked to answer questions and, and I had to practice tough and difficult questions and how to avoid those. And, and it was a really great experience for me and really prepared me for you know, some of the uh, 
the speaking that I did on behalf of Anthem during that incident. Sure. Let's practice again. By the way, David didn't know I was going to do this. If you're the, the let's say you're the CSO or maybe the, the CEO, and if I'm a, a really bad news reporter uh, and I want details on the breach that just went public, in fact, it's day zero, we're all very stressed out. You probably haven't had the chance to be briefed all the way, but uh, Dave, can you tell us how the adversary got into your network? I can tell you that we have an expert team of individuals internally who are putting together a report as we speak. We've hired an external firm uh, to help us with that. We've also engaged law enforcement and we're following our plan very closely to execute so that we have actions for our customers and can uh, respond as, in a timely manner to ensure that there are, are no impact to our customers and users. That, that's sort of like the generic line that I would respond <laughs> with. But I read on Twitter that uh, it was uh, the result of a, of a phishing message that was sent to one of your uh, help desk employees. Uh, is, that, is that true? That's a pretty common type of attack. Um, we're investigating every avenue that we possibly can in this, and we will come back with all the information, accurate information, um, when we can make that available. Could you share, uh, if you would, details of the kill chain? Uh, what, what's, how, did, how did this start, and uh, how did you clean it all up, Dave? Well, if you're asking me that, it means we cleaned it up, so we must be good. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but no, I mean, this is this is detailed. So this is a common question that that I've had and others have had is, hey, can you share the? Let's can can we share? It's day zero, right? So you're not going to have that. But but that would be a common common question. Now, what would be? Give me a. And all kidding aside, give me a a wrong answer. So you gave good answers there. So those were. From my perspective, very comprehensive. You gave you you put color onto the problem. You you shared a complete answer, but you didn't overshare, right? And and I think that that would be kind of where you know it exudes confidence. You have a message. This is what we're going to do. This is our plan. For fun, maybe a laugh. Uh, give me a, a bad answer here in just a second. Uh, so, Dave, how did you guys detect this problem? Uh, was this is how did you identify this problem had occurred in your environment? I think someone uh, noticed some weirdness in a log, it, it, although maybe it was, it might have been law enforcement that informed us of this. So we're, we're still figuring out how we, we knew and, and next steps. Right. So run that back. Tell us why. So break out a character. Why is that a terrible answer, Dave? There's no confidence, lack of confidence, lack of clarity. Um, it shows that we really don't have an understanding of the incident currently internally, um, and it will make customers nervous and lose faith. Furthermore, maybe even down a little more in the weeds, we don't know if we identified it or if somebody on the outside identified it. It just shows a lack of competence, um, and it shows that this incident's nowhere near close to being handled effectively. So, so let's maybe jump back into character again quickly for this one to say, Dave, how did your organization detect this problem? Well, we, we've deployed a complete suite of solutions, security solutions across the organization. We have uh, have a number of different compliance requirements that we passed with our auditors, internal and external, to make sure that we're able to detect and respond to attacks effectively. And those systems worked according to how they're supposed to, and we're, we're able to detect a, an attack, and now we're launched into our incident response program, you know, something to that effect, right? So, sure. so that you're organized, you have your... Now, assuming this is true, right? You don't want to lie to someone, and, you know, if you didn't have certain basic controls involved. But, you know, what you're admitting is you have a industry average program, and you're, you're following the book, which is fine. And in an example where that might not be the case, or maybe you were informed, maybe you have all of that, but you receive notification externally, 
how, I know this is extremely sensitive and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what a general advice, obviously talk to your, talk to your lawyer and your, your response team, if you're in the middle of this, uh, but let's say, uh, you're having a problem and, and you know, what is the answer then if you say, Hey, how did this get detected or, or why did you kick off this investigation? What would be another version of a proper response? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and the notifications typically only happen through like the FBI or other government agencies, and it's usually some sort of counterintelligence operation. So, in that case, it typically means it's either a very, very well formed, you know, organized crime group, or more likely, it's going to be some sort of nation state intrusion group. And you'll know that typically as part of the notification or when you involve a third party. So, I say that's when most people sort of tag on the advanced attack. Sure. Uh, item, which, which, listen, you know, people joke around about it, everything's advanced, but it's an effective way to demonstrate that, hey, this is beyond what a normal organization, you know, especially like in, you know, in the manufacturing industry should be prepared to respond to, right? Like, you know, I always, I always think Kevin was right in that you can't really expect a bunch of companies, especially some of the things that are going on now to be able to respond and detect effectively a nation state like Russia, for example, right? Like this is right. beyond most organizations capacity. No question. Sorry, I'd also say like, you know, as we go through these questions, hopefully you would be avoiding questions from a, a reporter that you don't know. And one of the things I think that people forget in part of their planning is that you should have relationships with reporters who you trust and who you like and who you know to report the news accurately and who understands security because i think that's one of the often the parts that create stories that uh you know have problems or create more issues is they're not accurate people don't understand security so if you have a relationship with someone and you can give them the story first to break it and it's not your narrative it's just the facts it's accurately portrayed at least it sets the stage for a good article that has good technical information you trust the individual. I think that's also one of the best ways to go. You should have that, you know, prepared and ready. That's an excellent point. And I and I think I'd like to ask you one more thing uh, related to your earlier statement is related to if I'm asking you, if I'm the reporter, and even if I'm a friendly and I say, hey, um, you know, how did you detect this? When is it okay? Let's say it is a criminal group. Let's say there's an active investigation. Maybe it's, you know, an APT, whatever. What is, I think there's an answer somewhere that is, you know, elements of our response are still under active investigation by the U.S. You know, government. Uh, there's certain details that we can and or, or won't share at this point. I mean, is, is that too bold of a, of a statement? And when is it okay to give an answer? Say, like, like there's, an ongoing, there's an ongoing investigation when we have a clearer picture and, you know, when given, you know, when this joint team is, is done, we'll, we'll share. Like, is there a, is there a point that you that you give some version of that message? Yeah, I think so. I, I think it's good to be upfront and honest. Like that's another thing where, if you have a good comms team, they'll know what the balance, which like what's on the record versus what's background to give the reporter some sense of what could be coming or you know how to sort of craft a messaging around something like that. So yeah, I, I think that's like something you need to work on with the comms team how to you know integrate that story within the uh, the storyline. Well, I think that's part of your the emotion and culture, both of the security organization and also of the company itself, that should be something that's talked about and practiced ahead of time yeah. to say, look, if we are notified by the government, if the FBI is doing an investigation and we are part of that now, it doesn't benefit us. And this is kind of why we practice some of this. It doesn't benefit us to talk about 
the database type that was used or the malware type or even to do uh, to sort of name the adversary. That'll come out later. There's no benefit to that, I don't think. And so maybe share your take on that to say, you know, there's details that need to be under a, a veil of protection and need to know. But like, educate us on that. What, what's, your, what's your opinion on that? What would you advise a, a new CISO related to this? The detail that you want to provide is dependent on the type of organization you are and your, your customers. So, you know, if you're a security vendor and you're breached, do you want to share actionable information on how to, you know, respond or detect your security tooling, right? Like that may have been compromised. That's a very important way to do this. If you're, if you're a, you know, manufacturing company, you're going to provide details to a lot less technical individuals and you're going to be sort of providing assurances around your manufacturing process and quality control and safety and things like that. So I, I think the message is it should be at the highest level possible to inform your customers, make them feel like things are in control if they are, and provide sort of actionable ways in which they can either protect themselves or ensure their business is protected. I want to go and step into basic capabilities. When I say capabilities, I'm not talking about something that you necessarily buy off the shelf. It may be assisted by something that you buy off the shelf, but a capability and mindset. In your opinion, what are the, the handful of things that an organization should have created to detect, disrupt, and respond? And I'm talking very high level. You mentioned lateral movement earlier. You mentioned egress. What are the ways that, what are the things that you had to add the most when going in to an organization, right? To, to help understand and ultimately respond. Like what was lacking in these organizations from a capability standpoint? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I went to a lot of large companies. So when I was a Mandiant, when I first joined Mandiant, um, I think it was my, it's probably my first incident. In fact, you know, Christopher and Glyer and I, we have birthdays, back-to-back days, the 4th and the 5th of January. And so I think we flew overseas to a, an organization and responded. and. During that two-month period where we were overseas, I started what was sort of our official remediation playbook. And it turned out that the remediation recommendations we came up with there applied just about everywhere we went. And, you know, from talking to people, still do apply to most organizations that, you know, have incidents. And a lot of the common themes are around network control. So segmentation, how easy is it to move around an environment? Because Big breaches are usually the result of not just like a few systems being breached, but of the entire network or entire infrastructure being breached. And so if you can sort of limit those access controls, network access controls, it's a huge boundary or a huge way to limit the size and, and scope of a breach. You know, things like the, the other was authentication. Just having two-factor authentication was a huge advantage. And I, and I was just shocked, especially, you know, early in the decade, how few organizations had two-factor. Just, you know, Outlook Web Access hanging out there on the internet, and there's still people like this today with just, you know, username and password, just insanity. So, you know, two-factor, and, and at this point, everyone should be moving towards hardware security keys, WebAuthn, right? Non-fishable forms of two-factor authentication. And, and that's, you know, those, like, if you were to implement controls around those two areas, which are not like vendor-specific things you need to go buy, technically, just a massive improvement to your security program. And it should mitigate and decrease the risk of you know, a large-scale compromise significantly. I agree. The reality is, is most networks, especially if you go into larger companies that you were referencing, 
most have grown. The data centers are old. They've grown over M&A. Uh, they're not segmented. Most are extremely flat. And there's still many organizations not using uh, two-factor or certainly not adaptive and certainly not internally. So that leaves, I think, a lot of security teams flat-footed where they have this sort of debt that they're having to defend. And so to me, I mean, I think that those are excellent examples of things you, you should have. But what if you don't? What's the, what happens if you don't have network segmentation and you don't have some sort of adaptive or two-factor auth? What's the adversary behavior that you're likely to see? That opens you up to ransomware, right? Like I'd say lower forms of, of you know, targeted attacks, like automated attacks, quite frankly. So it puts you at the sort of lowest tier, and now your security team has to worry about a range of attacks as opposed to focusing on more advanced attacks. And you know that, that's really where you want to be from a security program. Like I spend a ton of my time of like, how can I completely eliminate a certain risk, right? So maybe it's you know hardware security keys eliminate password theft, or you know eliminate phishing, you know, almost entirely, or um, you know disabling macros like eliminates an entire class of attacks. Like how can we continue to do that so we don't have to focus on quite as much? And I think you know not having some of these controls just means that the security team is responsible for so much more and makes the job so much more difficult. And you have so many more threats that you now need to sort of think about as you develop other detections. Uh, hopefully, you're developing custom detections elsewhere, right? Even related to, to ransomware, credential theft, and many others, I mean, one of the things that both in my prior and current position, uh, helping organizations tighten things up, but also be able to identify things like lateral movement in terms of the behavior. If you, if you have a network that is flat, if you uh, have a malware problem, if you don't have uh, strong authentication, sometimes even if you do, I've seen 2FA bypass happen. I've seen tokens in new pin mode. I've seen lots of failures there. But adding capabilities around you know, lateral movement, also looking into uh, egress, you mentioned macros, um, you know, disabling of the execution of PE files that are downloaded from the internet, right? And temp directories, all these sorts of fun things. Anything else that, that, that you often had to do or sort of clean up in a firefight when you, when you airdrop in from a capability or a technical perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of common processes that should already be effective, uh, like patching, for example, and third-party software being patched uh, and updated you know, some configuration management stuff. So it's the basics as well. I mean, and what was extraordinary is we're talking about all these different things and you're right, like for an enterprise to implement these, these are like year-long projects um, or multi-year projects. And we would accomplish all these things within a few months, which was insane. So it can be done. It just needs to be prioritized and needs to be effectively communicated, like the risk that these types of controls represent. But, you know, I was filling out an insurance form the other day and the questions were all around these areas. So it's nice to see insurance finally focus on, focusing on it. It was, I think, only because of ransomware, but it's all, how bad is your lateral movement in your organization, right? Do you have controls around it? You know, what, what does authentication look like? So you know, I also think that a lot of these can be implemented pretty quickly, especially if you sort of take off bite-sized chunks. Even today, now, now that everyone's remote in most places, there's a really great opportunity to do this and move to sort of a zero-trust model. Yeah. And... Um, you know, even if you were to say, like, just enforce Windows Firewall on every workstation you have so there's no inbound access, like, that's a huge advantage 
and sort of limiting the size and scope of a breach now that like an attacker just, even if they have domain admin, can't just reach out to a system and connect to it. And there's very few use cases in your organization anyway that you should have where someone needs to be able to reach out and connect directly to a, you know, end user workstation. So just simple things like that, you know, baby steps. Talk to me about, for those that don't know, what is a remediation event? I don't, you know, I don't know if there's still a thing. Um, so, you know, obviously I've been gone from Mandy for quite a time, but one of the, and it wasn't me who came up with it. It was actually, I think, uh, it was one of our other managing directors, I think, who came up with it. But the idea was when you have an advanced attacker in your environment, especially if they've been there for, you know, usually when we respond to the breaches, they've been there for months, if not years, right? I think like the longest one I saw was like six years, right? So when they're in an environment that long, there's really no way to completely investigate everything. So you have to assume that everything is sort of breached and you need to coordinate a series of actions that are guaranteed to remove the attacker from as many systems as possible in a short period of time so they can't react, right? And and this came from, I think, an early breach. It was before my time where they had remediated and during the remediation, the attacker was simply changing things and adapting to it so it remained present. So this idea of an event came up where you, you know, disconnect from the internet in most cases you perform an enterprise-wide password reset, service accounts, uh, you implement a bunch of new controls that d- will disrupt the attacker from returning, could be like blocking outbound communications from your servers, could be lateral movement prevention, could be new software, could be different detections. But all these things happen in about usually a 48-hour period, which is pretty intense. And then the, you know, the organization comes back online. It's a pretty crazy experience. So I, I think there's organizations that still do this from what I understand. Uh, but I think the idea of a remediation event to socialize with especially executive leadership is important. And the example I used, there was a point in time when my father was ill and he had an arrhythmia in his heart. And the way I described it to the room of people that were way above my pay grade, as I said, you know, he has an arrhythmia. The doctors are going to stop his heart briefly and they're going to shock it back into rhythm. Now, these, most of these folks were of an age where they knew somebody who had had this done or they had had it done themselves. And that resonated. And I said, the reason why we do this is we need to remove the arrhythmia, remove the problem from our environment. And we need to make sure it's gone. And this is the step technically that allows us the highest level of assurance that that has occurred. And everybody nodded their head. Everybody got it. And that there was no more discussion about what we needed to do. And I said, now it's going to be a little bit disruptive. You know, we're going to have to do some things. I said, but it's going to be in a tight window and no questions. And um, I think it's an educational thing. And so I, that's why I asked you the question. I think many people don't understand what it is. They don't understand what it means, but it is definitely an intentional outage. Yeah, I, th- I think it's changed too, because you have a lot of organizations that are now sort of in the cloud, have infrastructure as code. And so the process of a remediation event is a little bit different. It's just simply pushing out once you've validated that things are um, the, the integrity of your, your code, you can simply just push out new infrastructure pretty quickly. So I think you know that event is still valid. I think it's changing though for some organizations as they mature. No question. So let, let's actually, let's spend a second on that. So one of the things that I've been, that I'm personally interested in but I think the market is going to need to get educated on as well is when you have a cloud only or a hybrid environment where you have maybe some on-prem and some cloud, adversary behavior changes, 
things like remediation events change, the way you clean up, but certainly the way you detect. So things like lateral movement change, the cleanup you mentioned. So you just push a known good image, assuming you know the image or the configuration is good, right? We have to make that assumption. What else is changing? What's one thing that you would want to educate maybe a legacy CISO or security team on in their journey to the cloud as it relates to the things you got to do when a problem hits? For me, I'm like an old timer now where, you know, most of most of what I used to rely on was on the endpoint, right? It's forensics evidence at scale. And so, you know, when I joined Mandy and it was, you know, enterprise investigations were a new thing and we were sort of making it up as we went. So you'd go to a a company with 400, 500,000 devices and you'd have to find a way to search across all those devices for specific file names or some other information, registry key, perhaps something on that system. And that was a really difficult task. You have systems on different networks, you have systems on slow links, you have systems offline, and that was pretty challenging. And I think we've, you know, graduated from that to more like the EDR methodology where you're just, you know, over time collecting it, um, which is, you know, helpful because now you can sort of search it centrally. But, you know, still it's all these different systems and infrastructure and, and sort of a different backplane. But in the cloud now, especially if you're moving to like serverless, you, it's really just logs, right? Streaming event logs, you know, information and your code base that it's dependent on how much do you want to retain? How much do you want to collect? And it's all in the same backplane, so it can be immediate in terms of the data you're collecting or the response that you're going to issue. So, you know, for me, it's really changed in like the speed of being able to gain access to information. The quantity of information is vastly improved and the ability to exact change is much faster. Now, I will say that's a bad thing because if you're an attacker and you're on AWS, you also have that same speed advantage to be able to do bad things very quickly. So that, that's another concern. One kind of maybe final idea, I get this a lot. I had a, I had a question given to me and I'll, I'll, I'll give you my answer and then I'd like you to comment on it. I had somebody ask me, ask me once, Steve, when, is, when do you know when the breach is, is over? And I think it was more of a technical question, but the answer I gave was this. It was the breach is over when the executives begin behaving the way they did prior to the breach. Now, this gets into organizational culture and emotion and sort of who the organization is. So it's dependent. But what is the, the, the memory of a breach within an organization generally, according to Dave? I think it also goes back to that marketing that I talked about before is how well is leadership able to continue to articulate, security leadership able to articulate to executives why security matters. And, you know, I think they, you know, it's never going to be the same heightened experience during a 